Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're now in the fourth quarter of 2022. Markets continue to bounce between green and red, continuing last quarter's trends, which saw the S&P 500 fall to its lowest levels in September since March 2020. We're joined again today by Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, for his Global Macro and Markets Update, as we look ahead to earnings season, the next Fed meeting, and what else is on the horizon globally to impact markets. As stocks aim for a rebound, what can we expect from this earnings season? Among other insights shared today with host Pamela Rishi, Urian believes we're starting to get indications that we're getting closer to the end of this decline than we have been so far. Stay tuned for this and more. Also, per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on October 3rd, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Joining us here to discuss all of these large points that we're watching circulate in the market right now is Head of Global Macro at Fidelity, Yuri and Tipper. Joining us from Ireland, great to see you. Yes. Uh, hi, nice to see you, Pamela. Greetings from Dublin. Uh, I'm on the tail end of a long, long roadshow uh, for our international colleagues. So I was in Madrid, Milan, a couple of days at my parents' house in Holland to check up on them because they're both recovering from COVID. Uh, mm. And now in Dublin uh, for some client events. And also it just happens to be uh, totally coincidentally also my son's birthday who lives yeah. here. So uh, as, soon, as soon as we wrap this up, we're heading to a pub. So. Fantastic. Okay. Well, take us through... The markets, there's sort of this sense, it's been a long time of so-called the easy money. And we are now, it seems, seeing what's exposed, perhaps, out of that story. Is that, is that fair? The first slide we'll look at today is Fed Tightening Cycles, tweeted by Urian on October 3rd. And again, that's at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. This has been a moving target all year, right? So it's been a a pretty horrific nine months uh, for the stock market, for the bond market, for every market basically. Um, and we've been on the you know, on the falling side of a falling knife. Uh, you know, markets tend to bottom in a V shape, um, and we're kind of on the wrong side of the V so far. But I think we're finally starting to get the ingredients that maybe we're getting closer to the end of this decline than we have been so far. And and I'll sort of tee this up for you. So it's a combination of three things. One is, as you can see here, this Fed cycle is the most aggressive in decades. You know, that uh, thick black line is the projected Fed cycles uh, index from the start of the cycle, which was you know, earlier this year, of course. Um, it's a very rapid, very large increase in rates. And that's bringing the Fed from you know, well below what we consider the neutral rate, you know, the natural rate of interest or R star to well above it. We're not quite there yet, but 
based on what the Fed told us uh, at the last FOMC meetings and via its dot plot. Um, sometime in the next six months, if the Fed stays on course for what it's going, what it says it's going to do, the Fed will end up around two and a half percent percentage points above the neutral rate, uh, and that's about as restrictive as the Fed has ever gotten. So I think for the first time we can say that, you know, it's going to be hard for the Fed to um, uh, to move the goalposts yet again in the wrong way, but, and it's going to be easier for it to move the goalpost in the right way, right? And now we're at the point where, you know, the currency markets are kind of becoming ground zero for this policy cycle. We see things breaking everywhere. We thought, you know, in the UK, we saw things starting to break, although that was in part, you know, of its own making with fiscal policy. But the, the effects of the Fed's policy cycle being the globe, you know, the world's global central bank, uh, not everyone likes to hear that, but with the dollar being still the dominant reserve currency, what the Fed does has an impact on everyone. We're starting to see, you know, the financial system get under some strain, which I think puts us closer to the potentiality of a Fed pivot, right? So w between the market pricing in an extreme Fed and things starting to break in the financial system. Um, and at the same time, inflation expectations are collapsing. I mean, this chart shows the CPI and the PCE, which is the orange line. And that chart would be tips break evens versus headline inflation, also tweeted on October 3rd. And then those three dotted curves there was the the, the, the forward tips curve um, as of July. Wow, look yellow, at that. As of August in in, yes, in gray and as of September in the black. And you can see that the one year expected inflation rate is actually below 2%. Wow. And it stays at or below 2% for the next 10 years. Now, maybe the tips market is totally wrong. Maybe it's no longer relevant because the Fed owns a third of it. All of those things could be true. But you combine, you know, an extreme Fed being priced in with things starting to break with infl inflation expectations, you know, collapsing, and it all brings us potentially closer to the Fed saying, you know what, instead of four and a half, five percent, maybe we're going to be good at four percent. And that's all you're going to need for what we in the U.S. call a rip your face off rally. So I'm not I'm not calling for that yet, but I think we're getting closer to that point. That's fascinating. I mean, just just sort of seeing it charted like that. As, so as we mentioned, Darian, in, in the introduction of the earnings picture coming closer and closer, take us through, again, what you sort of see on the valuation side of things in light of earnings being around the corner. Yes, uh, absolutely. So as we've been talking about for, for weeks and weeks, if not months, this has been a valuation-driven decline so far, right? And it's actually very simple to, to illustrate that, and I've, I've done that here in this chart. Let's take a look at equity valuation, tweeted on October 5th. So the two drivers for valuation, not always, but during this particular cycle, have been the nominal two-year treasury yield, and, and I use the two-year because it encompasses the entire Fed cycle, right? In the next two years, the Fed will be long done with this cycle and on to the next one. So the two-year is a good snapshot as to what markets are expecting from the Fed. And then the real 10-year is, of course, reals are very important for all markets. So if you take the nominal two-year and the real 10-year, 
put them in a little regression model and you express them as a PE ratio, you'll get the orange line in this chart. The gray line, of course, is the actual forward PE. And as we've been talking about, this has been a moving target with every time the market goes down, entirely based on valuation, the, the, you know, that orange line goes down further. And as you can see, it's almost two points below where the gray line is. But that orange line is a function of those two interest rates, which can change at any point, right? If the Fed says, we're not going to go as far as we said we're going to go, then all of a sudden that orange line starts to move up and maybe the market actually is over, is, is, is cheap by that. Um, we're not there yet, but maybe that's where we're going. And so, um, if we add to that, then the E side, right? Because the forward PE is only as good as the E, uh, then that brings us to earnings season. Next up, earnings estimate progression, tweeted on October 5th. Earnings season starts in about a week or two. And so far, the consensus growth estimate, which is that black line, has been gradually falling as it typically does, but it's still positive. It is gradual, though. Not, it's gradual looking yes, at that chart. It, yes, it's it's glacial. Let's put it that yeah. way. Um, and, and, you know, and it makes me wonder if maybe the market is a little bit complacent, uh, because if we look at, for instance, uh, let me see which slide this is, slide 18. For us, that is earnings estimates. There were a few earnings estimates slides tweeted in a thread. We'll look at number five in the thread with the small red circles, which was tweeted on October 6th. Yeah, we know that the U.S. dollar, of course, has been on a tear. All the other currencies are in the crosshairs of that, including the loonie, of course, but not just the loonie. Every currency, the the pound, um, the, the the euro. I mean, it's kind of nice to be in Europe as a as a U.S. citizen because everything is a lot cheaper than it used to be. But if you look at the dollar as a leading indicator for S and P 500 revenues, which Makes sense, right? Because 40% of the S&P uh, gets, you know, earns revenue from outside the U.S. So you look at that blue line, that's the rate of change of the dollar on a reverse scale. So that 19% means the dollar's up 19% from a year ago, which is a lot. Then that orange line is uh, revenue growth for the S&P. And then those red circles are the estimates for 2022, 23, and 24. And you can see that the estimate is going from 11% to 4 and then staying at 4 But based on that blue line and the correlation between those two lines, you know, maybe the market is not quite appreciating the impact that the dollar might have. So I, I do think that there, are, there may be some negative surprises coming from earnings season when it gets uh, underway in a couple of weeks. Um, and as we showed in the previous chart, the valuation regime is still not favorable, right? It won't be favorable until interest rates actually start to decline. So it becomes a real balancing act of threading the needle that if the Fed finishes or pivots before earnings growth or the economy goes negative, then we have a soft landing, right? Uh, because then earnings growth, even though it's slowing, can stay somewhat positive while the cost of capital starts to come down. But it's going to be a pretty careful balancing act. Um, and so that's, I think, what the next month or so is going to be about. But at this point, I think that the, the Fed potentially pivoting. And by pivoting, I don't mean starting to ease rates. I don't think that's just, you know, just even stopping, remotely likely. Right? But just, just, just saying 
just just managing expectations towards a a lower finish than what it said it was going to do a couple of weeks ago. And you know, you can imagine every central banker around the world is calling Gay Powell saying, "Hey, what are you doing? You know, we need some relief here." Um, and so I'm, I would imagine the pressure is is on the Fed to maybe look at the tips market or or not push things as far as they are because maybe they don't have to, right? If the tips market's even remotely correct then inflation may actually be a positive surprise going forward. But I wanted to mention one more thing, and that is that even if the earnings numbers are due for a negative surprise, and maybe we get a slight contraction in earnings growth, and that certainly wouldn't be the first time, it's then still not as simple as saying, well, then we apply a forward P.E., on a lower E, and then you get a whole other down leg for the market. I mean, intuitively, you would kind of think that, but we have to remember that markets tend to bottom well ahead of the earnings bottom, right? So even if we get the E right in the PE, and even if the E is not $235 a share as is currently expected, but let's say 220, which is the current trailing number, that still doesn't tell us that the market is actually going to go much lower because the market tends to bottom six months before earnings. And by the time that earnings bottom, the PE is usually up already 20% from the low. So it's very much a non-linear exercise, and it's not as simple as getting the E right and then applying the current PE because there are too many moving targets there. And so for me, the best approach is, you know, if an investor has a lot of cash, which you know, obviously would be a good thing right now, because cash is essentially the only thing that has worked for the last nine months, um, maybe both on the 40 side and the 60 side, it's not a bad idea to start maybe putting some money to work because we're never going to catch the bottom of that V, right? So um, if, we, if we're too early, it can be costly, but if we're too late, it can be costly as well. So maybe some kind of dollar cost averaging strategy here makes sense because the more we see kind of all the stresses in this in the global financial system, and now we're hearing about big European banks being under duress, um, the more we hear about that. Okay, the there's, more a, that there's a question about that. Sorry, I, yeah. a question came in just yeah. on that specifically. Do you mind? Of course. Basically, yes. just, you know, the question is, are European banks and the duress that you're talking about, is, is there a bit of a canary in the coal mine? That's the question. Yeah, uh, there there always is, and maybe uh, what we're hearing about Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse, not not to not to name names, but those are certainly not the first time we've heard those names. We've been hearing about okay. Deutsche Bank uh, since the, since the eurozone debt crisis, right? And um, you know these are gigantic financial institutions. They're they're too big to fail. They have too many cross assets, and so I'm not saying they would get bailed out or whether they need to get bailed out, but uh, you know, issues with the banking system in Europe, it's certainly not the first time we've heard about this. Um, this is a 10-year-old story. But, yes, you know, the dollar is going up a lot because the Fed is uh, really slamming on the brakes while other central banks are either slamming on them less firmly or not at all in the case of Japan and China. Um, and, you know, if if dollars are the primary funding currency around the world, which they continue to be about – 60% of global reserves are U.S. dollars. Uh, it's going to be felt, and um, and in Europe, there you know the banking system is kind of bloated and fragile. That's why uh, there's been so much economic stagnation, um, and you know you're gonna you're gonna see it there, and you can see it in the price action. Right? 
But will it be safe, though? Two banks. You mentioned too big to fail. Will it be safe? Um, I, I, I you don't so. know. And it's not just. But, and I, I don't. I don't know. But I would think that if you're too big to fail, you're you're too big to fail. And and it's not just those two banks, right? If if there's pressure on those banks, that means they're going to be pressure on the economic system in general, right? Europe, of course, has this unique issue where it's this fragmented hodgepodge of countries and 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 fiscal policies. And just like the eurozone debt crisis, right? If the ECB ECB had to loosen policy, not because Germany was weak, but because Italy and Spain were weak. And at the same time, now it's not able to maybe tighten policy as much as it would like for those same reasons. And, you know, I was just in Italy and Spain. Everything seemed fine, but maybe Madrid and Milan are not. Maybe they're not representative of the countries uh, as a whole. Um, but if you're going to see pressure on certain big systemic banks, then you would see the same pressure, I think, on the credit spreads of, let's say, Italy to Germany, you know, BTVs to Boons. Um, and, and, you know, those spreads have widened, but they're not at crisis points. And so it's all a long way of saying that uh, these problems are going to limit the ECB's ability to tighten policy, you know, in, in maybe the way that they would like. And ultimately, I don't think it will have much choice but but to do that. Do you think that I mean, we've seen this, some people call it a monetary experiment of some version of QE plus a rate hiking cycle all at the same time being, I mean, do you, do you see that being duplicated anywhere? In the UK, there's sort of, some people will call it that I, because the, the BOE is in the markets. I, I think so. And it's, you know, ironic because it's sort of, you know, what's the yeah. point of, of raising rates if you're doing QE at the same time? But in a way, that's what the ECB has already said, right? They're, we're going to raise rates because the banks want to kill inflation, right? So there's right. nothing they can do other than raise rates and, and jawbone the hell out of the markets, right? The Fed's doing the same thing. Uh, and, and it will, you know, it will play into the ability for the Fed to, to pivot maybe as much as they otherwise would have because they're trying to rein in the inflationary psychology, right? Like in the 70s, inflation became a long lasting problem because the, the behavior became entrenched and they and it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. So I think that's one of the reasons why central banks sound so hawkish. But the the example of the of the BOV uh, Bank of England last week buying bonds to kind of calm down the markets and the moves in the gilt market were like just epic, you know, hunter. 100 basis point moves are like, you, you know, it's almost hard to imagine. Yeah. Uh, and it, yes, and it shows you how much stress the system is under. But you raise a good point, and that is that uh, as much as the Fed is now doing quantitative tightening and there are basically no buyers left for, for treasuries at this point or other bonds, I, I think eventually the Fed, the Bank of England, the ECB, the Bank of Japan is already there. They're going to have no choice but to remain a dominant player in their respective bond markets. You know, I think the Bank of England, they'll, they won't call it quantitative easing. They'll call no, it emergency operations to, to, to help with the, the functioning of the markets. But, you know, all of these countries, all of these regions, right, England, Canada, the U.S., Europe, China, Japan, they all have massive debt burdens. You know, when you add up uh, government sector, private sector, the corporate sector, the financial sector, all of these regions have at least 350% debt to GDP, which is enormous. Right. And no country or region 
can stomach high interest rates when you have that kind of debt burden. So what the Bank of Japan has been doing for years and years now with its yield curve control, I think it's only a matter of time before all the other central banks will will just have to do the same thing. And maybe yeah. that's what the price of gold has been telling us all along, right? Based right. On, on real yields, based on real yields, gold should be at a thousand dollars an ounce right now. And it's and at sixteen, seventeen hundred. Mm. Um and so that's kind of what I think the next chapter is. And that might play into crypto as well, but uh but it's the next chapter, it's not this chapter. There's a question on that actually. It's it's on Bitcoin it's actually on Bitcoin and the environment, but maybe you could kind of tackle both of those. So so with gold uh, responding, uh, what what also do you see for what's sometimes called digital gold? It isn't always, but. Yeah, so I think gold is sensing that uh, that there's going to be a limit to how much interest rates can rise, uh, bond yields can rise. Let's now look at buyers and sellers of USTs, last tweeted on September 29th. Uh, they're rising a lot, of course, uh, the 10-year U.S. yield was at 4% last week. It's a little bit lower now. But basically, the, the bond market's run out of buyers. Uh, you know, what I call economic investors, uh, people like you and me and, and the folks on, on this uh, webinar who buy because, you know, bonds have value. Uh, those have gone on a buying strike just because yields have been rising. Um, and then the non-economic buyers, the central banks, basically, uh, they've been either not buying or selling, actually. You know, the Bank of China is selling. Uh, Bank of Japan is. The U.S. The US Fed is at least no longer buying. Those are the blue bars there. So that's the year-over-year change in Treasury holdings by different central banks. Um, and so I think what gold senses is that there's a limit to how much yields can rise because at some point it becomes so burdensome for an overly indebted economy that the central bank will end up being the buyer of last resort, which actually brings us all the way back to our 1940s analog that we talked about so many times over the past two and a half years where we had a decade of financial repression. So I think gold is kind of betting on that outcome that at some point the Fed will certainly abandon quantitative tightening and it'll do some version of yield curve control to try to limit how much interest rates can rise. And that, you know, to your question brings us to, to Bitcoin. And the question was about the environment. I think the ESG angle to Bitcoin is rapidly sort of um, going into the background because now that China, that now that uh, the mining of Bitcoin is no longer happening in China and more and more is happening in the U.S., I think just these publicly held miners and just the the the, the Bitcoin community in general is very much uh, focused on making that a more sustainable form of mining. So I think the ESG part is kind of uh, being resolved on its own just through market forces. But just another word on Bitcoin, which I think I think is actually uh, a really a test uh, testament of its longevity. So even though Bitcoin's at 20,000, it's down you know a lot from its highs from early last year. The adoption curve, I, I don't have the chart this week, but the adoption curve continues to expand, even though the macro narrative could not possibly be any worse. Like two years ago, the macro narrative was amazing, like money supply growth, the Fed's going burr and all that stuff. Now we have the opposite of that. And still the adoption curve is growing. And I think that's a testament to the fact that the fundamentals 
of Bitcoin continue to improve and that it's just a question of valuation. Like what what are investors willing to pay for it in terms of, you know, valuation? And I look at Bitcoin's valuation as a price to network ratio, the price divided by millions of addresses. And the valuation is actually back to 2014 level. So by that, by that, um, uh, you know, through that lens, in my view, Bitcoin is actually pretty inexpensive, but in, in need of a catalyst to get people, you know, back into the game and, and maybe this gold story and, and the Fed, you know, re-intervening someday down the road will be exactly that narrative. That's fascinating. Um, a couple of questions here. Just get to them if we can. This is a question surrounding oil yeah. and OPEC, obviously. Um, the cut of oil production, sort of the reaction there and, and perhaps what's to come. Yeah, so oil, you know, it's supply and demand, not, not to sound like overly clever yeah. about that, but we know the supply story. Uh, we know that uh, during COVID, of course, you know, the economy screeched to a halt. Uh, the, the shale wells were shut down. It's not so easy to open them back up. We also went from uh, a, a very... Uh, uh, pro-energy political regime, at least in the U.S., right, under former President Trump. It was like you could like, drill anywhere, anytime, basically. And then we we switched all the way to the other side of the political spectrum and, you know, no more drilling on public lands and things like that, no, no Keystone, all of that stuff. Um, and I think, you know, national security is kind of re-entering the picture in terms of, you know, what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine and and oil prices soaring, that you know what it, it's all it's all really important to be you know economically and environmentally sustainable uh, in terms of new you know renewable energy sources. But uh, how you manage that transition uh, becomes very important. And I, and I just saw this in real time because I was in Holland for three days uh, until yesterday. And they have a massive energy crisis there, not for oil, but for natural gas. Right. You know, even though Holland is sitting on this giant reserve of natural gas, they, they like Germany, are dependent on the Russians. Uh, and, of course, we know what's happening with Putin and now with the Nord Stream, that, that supposed sabotage. Um, and so that's a real crisis. And they have, you know, fiscal relief programs to help people pay their bills. But, you know, that only goes so far because the problem is much bigger. And then Putin is doubling down. So th this for now is a, is a problem without a solution until countries like Holland and Germany and, and other countries become uh, truly more energy self-sufficient. But it's not an overnight thing, as, as you as you know. And, right. you know, we, we the Fed can hope for demand destruction, but that's only part of the story because the supply constraints are, I think, are really what, what are driving uh, energy prices. A couple, of, a couple other questions you can get uh, this one in. Certainly you're in. Um, does the U.S. dollar stay strong? We've seen a bit of movement there today, but ultimately, does it stay strong? What does that mean actually for inflation and probably the imported, exported inflation story? Well, so a strong U.S. dollar is, you know, is good for U.S. inflation in that, you know, it's deflationary. Of course, it's bad for everyone else. Uh, my sense is that th this is going to be a huge macro trade for all asset classes when the Fed either reaches the end of its projected cycle, which would be four and a half, five percent by early next year, or if it pivots, uh, again, not by cutting rates, but by 
just going less far than it said it was going to. That will be exactly the same. Uh, that will have exactly the same effect as cutting rates because it's all about the rate of change of what's priced in. Uh, so when that happens, it'll be the stock market that turns. It'll be the bond market that turns. It'll be the dollar that turns. It'll be probably commodity prices that turn because the sooner the Fed were to pivot, if, if it indeed is going to, uh, the, the more plausible or possible it is we can avoid a hard landing, right? Because if the Fed's going to go all the way to where it says it's going to go, it's going to be at a properly like restrictive level where in the past, when it got that far, we had a recession every time. So, so like the market is seeing that, okay, if the Fed's really going to do this, uh, we could have a recession, but if the Fed stops short of it, we could have a soft landing and then you get relief on the PE side of the market. And I think then the dollar turns um, and, you know, um, and at that point, you know, EM will do well, probably China will do well, the Luna will recover um, and you'll have like a massive global reallocation trade away from the U.S. into more reflationary parts of the world. That's fascinating. We'll, we'll leave it there. And you're in, we're so grateful to have you join us. As always, you, you fit us into a very busy schedule. Wishing you uh, safe travels home. Thank you. See you back, back in Boston next week, finally. Back in Boston. Thank you. It's Yuri and Tim are joining us on Fidelity Connects. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. Until the next time.